0: to the next edition of Table Scraps, a production of Table Talk Radio. I'm Evan Gigline, and we're continuing the series where we study uh, different Christian denominations to the Lutheran Church. And today's installment is talking about Calvinism, and joining us for that conversation is Vicar Andrew Packer. He was a member of the Presbyterian Church of America, and formerly attended Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary for two years before enrolling at Concordia Theological Seminary, and is currently the vicar at St. Paul Evangelical Lutheran Church in Lockport, Illinois. Welcome, Vicar Packer.
1: Thank you very much for having me, Evan. I appreciate it.
0: All right. Uh, let's start off by just defining terms. Um, uh, what do we mean when we talk about Reformed churches? Uh, what what all does that umbrella kind of cover of Reformed churches and uh, what churches uh, ascribe to Calvinism in the broad sense?
1: Um, that's a that's a great question. One of the frustrations, I think, for a lot of Calvinists, I know even as a former Calvinist, I sometimes get frustrated. Lutherans, when they often use the term Reformed, use it to refer to everyone not Lutheran. Um, and so oftentimes, Reformed and Calvinists will hear hear us talk about the Reformed, and what we mean is, anyone not Lutheran, and what they hear is um, an attack on different elements of Calvinism. So Sometimes they don't, they don't hear their position being represented, and that's because we're not actually representing the Reformed view, what they see as Reformed view. Um, Reformed churches, I'm going to stick with what would be more the conservative ones. Um, just like in Lutheranism, there's those who have the name but no longer subscribe to the theology, so with, within the conservative ones, you've got some of the bigger ones would be the Presbyterian Church in America, which has about 300,000 members or so. You've got the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, which is the other large um, large conservative. They've got about 30,000 members. Same with the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. And then there's a lot of other small Presbyterian and Reformed churches of various sizes that still hold to the... Confessions, either of the Westminster Confession of Faith, if they're Presbyterian, and then also the three forms of unity, if they're they're Reformed but don't go by the Presbyterian name.
0: Uh, for well, we're going to dig into the the uh, theology in just a minute. But if if you had to name one theological issue in Calvinism that I don't know compelled you to check out Lutheranism, what what one theological issue would you say that was?
1: Um, it wasn't really one issue. I wouldn't say for me it was kind of a convergence of several issues. Um, the way Calvinism works is it's such a tight knit logical system that once you start pulling on on one strand, so to speak, of the sweater, the rest of it starts to come unraveled. I was looking into issues like the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's supper. I was looking into predestination and limited atonement. Um, I was kind of looking into some of the the big issues that separate Lutheran and Presbyterian, but not because I was looking into Lutheranism. I was just frustrated with the answers I was getting within Calvinism compared to what I saw in Scripture. And so it drove me more and more to studying the Scripture. And the more I studied, the more I realized that what the Calvinists were saying didn't line up with a lot of verses in Scripture. Um, And at that time, I didn't know that's what the Lutherans, what I was coming to was what Lutheran held to uh, until I read the Book of Concord and then I realized hey wait a minute this is this is what I see scripture teaching this is what this is what I found to be true and then then I realized I was a Lutheran
0: the the Book of Concord you just mentioned is the uh, the, the confessions of the Lutheran church so if you want to if someone wants to know what a Lutheran believes you could you could give them the Book of Concord and say this is uh, our, our, our doctrine um what do the Reformed churches have uh, Have as their Confession of Faith? What's their version of the Book of Concord?
1: Well, depending on which um, reform group, if you're looking at the Presbyterians, they're going to have the Westminster Confession of Faith, um, which is going to have the Westminster Confession of Faith, and then they're going to have the smaller and larger Catechism. Um, if you're looking at the, the Reformed churches, which I'm not as familiar with, although I've, I've, read, I've read their stuff, um, Reformed churches use what's called the Three Forms of Unity, which includes um, the well-known Heidelberg Catechism. So, um, depending on which church, and both of those are fairly similar um, in content, though the Westminster Confession of Faith is more developed and a little more thorough than the Three Forms of Unity is.
0: So, uh, would it be safe to say, um, whereas in the the Lutheran Church, as, as you mentioned, we have certainly some who have departed from... From Lutheran theology, but they've done so because of, of you know, they've they've done so by departing with what the Book of Concord says. While we have, you know, we have various uh, Lutheran church bodies, who might you know, might differ on on particular things. Like I, I think, namely of of LCMS and Wells. Uh, certainly, we, we disagree on the office of the Holy Ministry, but uh, uh, for the most part, we we hold to the Book of Concord. Whereas, would it be safe to say in Calvinism? we see a lot more variance uh, within the confession of, of Calvinist teaching? Would that be a, a true statement?
1: Um, I think, yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. Part of, part of it is, within Calvinism, um, the way they view their confessions is a little bit different. They don't have to subscribe 100% to their confessions. They can take exceptions to certain parts. And what that's done in the last 50 years or so has is created um, issues even within the conservative churches because then it starts to beg the question, well, if you can, if you can say, for instance, in, um, in the Presbyterian Church in America, you don't have to hold to the Sabbath regulations that are set down in Westminster Conf- Confession of Faith. You don't have to agree 100% with what they say on the Sabbath to be a pastor, um, but then it opens up other issues. Well, if you can get an exception on that, what else can you get an exception on? Right now they allow for, I think it's five or six different views of creation um, among their pastors, even though their confession is pretty clear in the language it uses that when their confessions were written six days was implied, so right now, I think because of that even in the conservative circles, it does start to create um, a little more variation because of the way their their confessions are viewed
0: okay uh w- let's let's start by looking at uh well, let, let's let's talk about this little axiom that we hear from Calvinism all the time: uh, the infinite cannot encompass, can, cannot be encompassed by the finite. Uh, what is the context of of that statement, and, and what is being said in that statement?
1: Well, what what they're trying to argue with Lutherans on when they, when they say that is, in particular, we're discussing the doctrine of the Lord's Supper, um, the idea that when we receive bread and wine as lutherans we believe we're receiving the body and blood of christ and that we're not just receiving it in our hearts as a calvinist might say but that we're actually receiving it in our mouth that we're truly receiving christ's body and blood for our salvation what's kind of ironic about their their statement that the finite is not capable of the infinite is that it's really they're trying to be rational And the way they look at the Bible and trying to use reason and logic to come to that conclusion but it's actually an illogical statement because by stating that they've actually limited the infinite. They're not really so much making a statement about the finite when they say that. They're making a statement about what God can or can't do and they're using their own reason to determine that, well, God can't do this. So It's not even so much an issue of the finite that's being discussed. It's really a matter of ultimately what they think about the infinite, they're imposing human reason, human rationality onto God, not just what God can do, but they even think, really even a step further, that God, that He thinks the way we do, that He reasons the way we do. And so when they limit God and say the finite is not capable of the infinite, what they're really doing is limiting what God can do. So even if God promises this is my body, this is my blood. What they're saying is, well, he may have said that, but he can't mean that because we've already determined beforehand that that can't happen. God can't do that. And so ultimately it's actually a, a statement against God, and actually it ends up being illogical because they're saying the infinite God is limited um, to a finite number of choices with what he can do if that makes sense. Sure,
0: yeah. Since you brought up uh, the Lord's Supper, what is, uh, what is a sacrament in Calvinism?
1: Um, that's a good question. Uh, there's still actually right now even a lot of debates um, among Calvinists about exactly what are the sacraments. Um, I'd say for most Calvinists um, in the country, country today, they're very similar to what Baptists would view them as, ordinances. Um, Now, they'll call them means of grace, but in Calvinism, they're they're a sign pointing to the real thing. They're not something you actually, you don't really receive anything in them. They're pointing you to the real thing. So in baptism, um, when you're baptized, it doesn't really do anything. It's pointing you to baptism in the Spirit, which may or may not, Happen at the moment of your baptism, or may or may not happen at all, if according to Calvinists, baptism is only effectual for the elect. So, and in their view, it's more—they use the term means of grace—but what they're really talking about is something that that shows that God's grace is gracious to us by giving these things. But He's not actually doing something for us within the sacrament. He's not actually saving us in baptism. He's not actually forgiving our sins in the Lord's Supper. So really what it ends up being is um, something that more that we do rather than something that God's doing for us.
0: Okay, I'm going to read here from the Heidelberg Catechism. I want you to respond to this as a Lutheran. It's question 65. It is by faith alone that we share in Christ and all his blessings. Where, uh, where then does that faith come from? And the answer is, the Holy Spirit produces it in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and it, and confirms it through our use of the Holy Sacraments. How do you respond to that as a Lutheran?
1: Uh, well, I'd say, first, as a Lutheran, there, there's some there's some good elements to that. We'd say, yes, the, the Holy Spirit works through the Word. Um, in fact, that's, that's one area where I think Calvinists often don't really actually believe that when it comes down to it, they believe they work through the Word because He only works through the Word for some and not everyone. And then at the same time, for us as Lutherans, it's in baptism God gives us the faith. God cleanses us. He forgives us. He does all that through baptism, through the water and the Word. And the same in the Lord's Supper, He forgives our sins. He's actually working through those means, through bread and through wine, and then in baptism, through water, he's actually combining his promise with these tangible things, and he's working his grace and salvation through those. And that's one thing that Calvinism has never really got when it comes to Lutheranism. They don't understand, first of all, why God would use means, and then second of all, they think in a lot of ways that it's beneath God use those means to actually be present in them, rather than something that just kind of is like a sign on the road that says stop. We look at it and see that tells us to stop, so we stop. They see baptism as a sign that points us to the fact that God's gracious to us in Christ, rather than realizing that in their baptism, they've received Christ and His graciousness towards them and forgiveness and life and salvation.
0: Let's uh, look then at uh, what what people commonly know about know about Calvinism. That is tulip. Um, where does tulip actually come from? And uh, uh, may, maybe not the acronym per se, but the the theological uh, assertions of tulip. Where does where does that actually come from?
1: Um, tulip was developing really. I mean the the theology kind of starts with Calvin, um, and then by the time you get to the Synod of Dort is really where it's where it's hammered out and it came in response to um, Arminian theology, Jacob Arminius and his theology um, and so really that the acronym comes in response to false teaching um, and so it's set up against the Arminian viewpoint um, and so TULIP itself is somewhat later in Calvinistic thought Um in fact, I've often argued, and I think it's true, that I don't think Calvin actually held the limited atonement. Um, I know a lot of Calvinists would ardently disagree with me, but everywhere you're reading Calvin, where he would have an opportunity to lay out limited atonement, he doesn't. Um, now, I think he laid the foundation and groundwork for it, and like I think he laid the foundation and groundwork for the whole TULIP format, um, so that by the time you get to the Synod of Dort, it's just a natural outflow and logical conclusion of the rest of tulip, the irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints, unconditional election, things like that.
0: All right, let's look at each one of these then. T is total depravity uh can Can Lutherans agree with calvin uh, or I should say Calvinism on total depravity? Uh, is it the is it, would would uh, Lutherans and Calvinism talk about de- total depravity in the same way?
1: Um, yeah, we we had better agree on with them on total depravity because that's one that they get absolutely right. Um, we just have to look at um, Luther's bondage of the will, for instance, to see that Lutherans have consistently and always held that man is dead in his trespasses and sins and that he can't do anything spiritually good. He can't do anything to to merit or earn God's favor, that he's completely, 100%, dead in his trespasses and sins. So the T, um, they get they get right. Um, sometimes the way the T, um, the total depravity is understood, as far as it gets worked out in non-spiritual matters, sometimes even within reform circles is debated. Sometimes, um, in their view, reason is almost completely destroyed, even in things below us, even on earthly things, which we would disagree with them on. But as far as man being totally depraved, totally dead in his trespasses and sins, we would be 100% in agreement with them on that one.
0: Okay, then unconditional election. uh, Talk to to us about what this one is and and whether we agree or disagree on uh, unconditional election.
1: Unconditional election in some ways is a tricky one as to whether we agree with them or not. When some Calvinists use it, uh, what it primarily is focused on is that God elects some only according to his grace and mercy, not according to anything that they have done. He doesn't look into the future and see that they're going to have faith in him and so then choose those people that he sees doing something. He only elects based on his mercy and grace. And if that's what the Calvinists you're talking with means by that, then we can agree with that completely, and our confessions teach the same. If, however, gets added to that the idea of double predestination that is, that God also has chosen before the foundations of the world those who are going to be um, damned, then we have to disagree with them at that point. Generally, it's it's supposed to be focused upon the electing unto salvation, and in that part we can agree with them on. If they start getting trying to lump in double predestination under the unconditional election, then we would have to part ways with them on that, and very vehemently, um, because at that point, then, once you start into double predestination, as I'm sure we'll get to in a moment, um, you really lose the gospel. Um, and it creates all kinds of problems once we get into that.
0: Uh, well, let's go ahead and talk about it. Would that come up more under the L, limited atonement?
1: Yeah, I, uh, I think so. I think L, in a lot of ways, the limited atonement is the kind of the linchpin of the whole system. Because it's the one that has to be... If you hold the double predestination, then you have to hold the limited atonement, because if you hold the double predestination, you can't have Christ dying for people that God had already determined beforehand were going to, that He was going to send them to hell, and so limited atonement really comes as a natural conclusion, which is why I said earlier that I don't think Calvin actually held to limited atonement. I think he held that those two ideas in tension. Um, more so than what happened shortly after him. Now, I think he definitely laid the foundation for limited atonement, but I don't think he actually went there, at least not during his lifetime. The moment you say that Christ only died for some and not all, um, you create all kinds of problems. The first is you can't really preach the gospel anymore. Um, There are countless passages in Scripture that talk about Christ dying for the world and dying for all and I know all of the the arguments and exegetical hoops that they jump through to say that those don't really mean all or don't apply to everyone and I've used to make those arguments but there's just too many scriptures that talk about Christ dying for the wor- world John 3:16 as a as an easy example or 1st John 2 verse 1 being a propitiation for not only our sins but the sins of the whole world The moment, though, that you have limited atonement, um, I think the biggest issue with Calvinism, especially as me coming out of Calvinism, is that it robs consciences of comfort because you can no longer look to Christ on the cross and be comforted. Because when you look to Christ on the cross, all you can say is, he died for the elect. Well, how do I know I'm elect? Well, in Reformed and Calvinist circles, you know you're elect if you believe, and if that belief is showing itself through your good works. Well, what about on those days where I struggle, and I realize my own utter sinfulness, and I realize how I don't keep God's law, and I realize how much I struggle to believe, then where do I look? I can't look at the cross, because that may or may not have been for me. And now, thankfully, when they preach, most I've never heard a Calvinist preacher say, Christ died only for the elect. If you're elect, it's for you. Most of them don't preach that way, which I find interesting. Although many of them will not allow... I remember there were articles written on how to evangelize, and you are not allowed to say, Christ died for you. You can't tell someone that. You can't go to someone and say, Jesus Christ died for you, because you might be lying to them. So you say, Jesus Christ died for sinners, and if they were elect then they'd hear that as good news. But for a Christian who's struggling with his sin, and if you really believe and really understand what the Calvinist system saying, you have to constantly wonder, if you're honest with yourself, am I elect? Or am I reprobate? I struggle with these things. I, I sin. I doubt. I have all these things. How do I know Christ really died for me? You look at your own works, and they fall short but you can't look at Christ because it may not have been for you. And so you're always going to struggle between despair on one hand and self-righteousness on the other hand, tricking yourself into thinking that, well, yeah, I'm a pretty good Christian. I keep God's law really well, and I do all these things really well, so I must be elect. And so really, once you get to L, you've robbed the gospel of its power because no longer can you proclaim the forgiveness of sins for everyone. Now you can only proclaim the forgiveness of sins with a condition. Well, this is true if you're elect. And I don't know if you're elect, and you don't know if you're elect. And even if you believe, really, you may not truly be believing. You may just be reprobate, and you may end up falling away and never have really believed. And so I think there's always a tension that that L creates um, within the system. And even for the person holding it, if they're really honest with themselves, you can't look to christ for comfort because it may not have been for you
0: and that i think is is so fascinating what you just said because uh, for luther the for you was such was the most important part i mean he talks exactly. about about how how every every worship gathering should have a sermon so that you have uh, you have the, the the reading of God's word, but that the sermon actually delivers it for you, or or uh, the the words at, at the, our Lord's Supper that this is given for the forgiveness uh, of of all sin for you. That, that that was the central thing. So what what Calvinism does is takes that uh, uh, that centrality of what Luther focused on, just takes it away because there's no longer a for you.
1: Well, and that's and as. To share a personal experience, which I know this doesn't prove or disprove anything here, but I took Calvinism extremely seriously. I used to—I always joked I was a Calvinist of Calvinists. I converted a lot of my friends to Calvinism. I was an ardent enthusiast for Calvinism. And yet I got to the point where I would sometimes weep, wondering, am I reprobate? I, I would realize that God's law was hammering me, and I was broken, and I didn't know where to turn because I'd look at myself and be like, I don't see much there that would prove anything. And I'd look to Christ on the cross and be like, well, it may not have been for me. Who knows? I can't really know. You can't look to your baptism because the baptism's only effectual for the elect. You know, you can't look to to anything except for yourself. And now I had a friend tell me recently, well, you, I look to God's promises just as you do. I said, but you can't know that that promise is for you. And that's the issue. Um, Once you take that for you, then you're left either in despair or you have to turn to self-righteousness just to keep your your sanity. Um, And that's if you're really putting into practice what you believe as a Calvinist. If you really believe in double predestination and limited atonement, where's the gospel? And you have to ultimately say you don't know.
0: Take us, take us through one of those uh, exegetical loopholes, as you called it. Let's just take a look, at, just so we can hear it. Let's take a look at John 3.16. Uh, what, okay. is, what is the world there? How would, how would you argue that as a Calvinist? A
1: um, like Calvinist, and I used to do this many times, um, they would point to other places in John where it says, like, of John the Baptist, look, the whole world has gone after him. And they would say, well, clearly, clearly not every single individual in the whole world is going after John the Baptist. The world doesn't always mean every person. And then, often, what would happen is, um, what I would do as well as what others would do, um, who I learned it from, is you can go to some place like Revelation 5, and it says, those from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people, and you would say, well, look, here's John, and he says, you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Well, there you have it. There's John describing the world for you. He's saying that it's people out of every tribe, tongue, language, and people, not every individual who's ever lived, but just those who are elect out of every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. Um, and same with you know, same with 1 John 2, 1, where not only for our sins, but the sins of the whole world. Um, where John's clearly, in that verse, distinguishing between Christians and non-Christians, the Calvinists will say, well, that's not really what he's doing. What he's really doing is distinguishing between those who are already believing there that, that John's writing to and those elect who will come to believe later. Um, and it's those kind of things. And what you're doing, really, is you're ultimately not saying what the verse means. You're saying what it can't mean um, based on your system. Well, this verse, can't, world can't really mean world because I've already determined that he can't save he's already said he's not going to save everyone. So I already know some people are going to hell and I've already believed in double predestination. So when it comes to Christ I gotta find a way for these seemingly universal statements to go away. And that's one of the ways you can do that.
0: How do Calvinists respond to First Timothy two four that says uh, that God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth.
1: Um, yeah, that's that's another one that um, they, they, they like to show. Um, they would say all men there refers to all types of men. And really, um, it's not a bad argument based on the text. It doesn't prove what they're saying, but they, they'll say all men there means all types of men, kings, because in the passage, it's talking about praying for kings and other people. That's talking about, well, whether someone's poor, rich, powerful, not powerful, you pray for all types of men. And so Christ, you know, all men there is referring to all types of men. Um, and so they tried to limit it um, that way. Um, also when, with the statements that say many, um, whereas with Lutherans, we'd see the statements as many, to, to be even clearer than the all, because it's not limiting, um, as various of our professors have pointed out, the the all in some ways can be taken to be limiting all of a certain group. Many, the masses, is talking about everybody, um, but they'll take the many and say the many can only be referring to the elect. So Christ gave Himself as a ransom for the many means that Christ gave Himself as a ransom only for the elect. Um, Even though I think there's been enough studies that people can look at linguistically to see that the many is the way that Hebrews talked about everybody. The way you talked about the masses of humanity was to say the many. Um, And even Calvin, actually, um, when you look at some of his commentary on some of the Old Testament passages, um, like Isaiah 53, places where you'd think he would argue limited atonement, he actually understands them the same way that they're referring to everybody.
0: What in Calvinism is historical faith or temporal faith?
1: I'm sorry, can you repeat the question? Yeah.
0: What in uh Calvinism is historical faith or temporal faith? Have you heard those terms? Um
1: yeah, I I haven't heard them honestly discussed a lot in um in in Calvinist circles. Um do you want to explain what you're thinking in regards specifically to Calvinism, or what you've come yeah, across?
0: Yeah, I, I understood uh, that to be uh, as kind of uh, one can can and can go out go about life, and because uh, you have the perseverance of the saints, if one uh, falls away from the church, it was that they uh, had a temporal faith; that wasn't a real faith; they were never really saved to begin with.
1: Yeah. Um, it, as far as perseverance of the saints, as far as that that goes. What they would say is if someone, let's say someone's even baptized as a, as a child in their church and grows up, and they're confessing all the stuff their whole life, and they're receiving the Lord's Supper, and they're doing all these things that seem to indicate that they, they believe, they're confessing that they believe this, um, and there's nothing in their lives that would indicate otherwise. They're not in any gross or heinous sin. Um, but yet, at some point, they walk away from it all they would say, well, that person never really had faith to begin with. Um, It just appeared that he had faith, but he didn't really have saving faith. And so that's the way they try to get around apostasy, is to try to look at anyone who walks away as, well, they never had it to begin with. Um, Now there's countless examples in Scripture of those who have apostatized, um, and so it's really hard... To get around and even the warnings in places like Hebrews what they end up saying is well those are hypothetical and they're meant to keep those who are saints in the faith well why do you need hypothetical warnings for people that are going to persevere anyway <laughs> you know <laughs> it doesn't make any sense but that's, that's the way they see anyone who would fall away from the church is that they didn't ever really truly have faith begin with it may have appeared that way in every facet of their life but ultimately you were fooled which is why i said going back to what i said earlier which is why as a calvinist you can never know if you're fooling yourself (laughs) because you may just walk away one day um and what do you look to again at that point then it at that point you just figure i'm reprobate um or if you're even contemplating it you know what i mean there's there's always going to be that tension, that struggle.
0: So, I mean, in, in Calvinism, uh, you can't really have a separation between uh, uh, atonement and election. So that if if God, if Jesus died for someone, then that person is going to be saved. You don't have like sometimes we hear Lutherans make these uh, distinctions of. Of objective justification and subjective justification, which you don't, you just don't have that in Calvinism. And so, uh, how would you, how would you work out this assertion? And this is maybe to to be honest, maybe more of an honest question rather than a leading question. Is there people that 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 Jesus has died, but he never tended to save? So, for example, if um, if the death of Jesus turns aside the wrath of God, uh, for example, away from Hitler, or reconciles Hitler and redeems Hitler and ransoms Hitler. Uh, then on the basis of what does Hitler perish? And and so if you say, oh, well, well it's, it's unbelief, then that would make unbelief a sin for which Christ didn't die. How do we respond to that assertion?
1: Yeah, and it, it's quite a common one because it goes back to um, John Owen in um, The Death of Death writes that his famous syllogism, that either Christ died for all the sins of all men and therefore all will be saved, he died for some of the sins of some men, or all of the sins of some men, so some men will be saved, or he died for some of the sins of all men, and therefore no one will be saved. Um, And what he's trying to prove there is that the only one that works is that if Christ dies for all of the sins of some men, um, meaning that, in your example, unbelief was also covered on the cross. I I think in a a lot of ways, um, it's the wrong question. It's Looking at the cross and the gospel through the lens of the law really ultimately is what it's doing. It's trying to make, again, God's reason conform to ours, which is why in Calvinism you can't have objective and subjective justification, because for them it doesn't fit human reason. To say that God has died, to say that Christ on the cross died for even Hitler, and so all of Hitler's sins are forgiven— does not to them make any sense whatsoever and it's hard for even I think most people to hear that to really grasp what that means but then at the same time to say but Hitler has rejected and refused that um and therefore is going to suffer wrath and hell for them doesn't make any sense and it, it goes to the, the one the one of the five we haven't really talked about irresistible grace I thought um. Reverend Fisk of Worldview Everlasting had a a great quote on this. He said, Irresistible grace, it's irresistible, but you can resist it. (laughs) (laughs) And um, that, I think, is the thing that the Calvinist just can't get his head around, that you can have someone for whom Christ died, and you can even have the Spirit working on them, and that person can resist, refuse, and reject the work of the Holy Spirit, and for them that just makes no sense whatsoever. Um, But to try to look at the cross and try to make it fit our human reasoning, I mean, the cross itself shouldn't fit our human reasoning. The Son of God is dying for our sins. Nothing about that makes sense according to human reason. There's not one thing about the cross to begin with that makes sense. So then to try to force on how that works out into some kind of human understanding of why it can be that Hitler stands forgiven objectively because Christ died for his sins but at the same time doesn't receive that for himself and therefore perishes in hell, I think to try to to figure out what the connection is between the atonement and Hitler's lack of faith is really to ask the wrong question and to look into stuff that, quite frankly, God hasn't revealed to us to know.
0: And so, I mean, a uh, a Calvinist would respond saying that, well, uh, man doesn't have the free will to reject it. H- however, I don't think uh, the scripture the scripture anywhere says that uh, that uh, that that we don't have the free will to reject. I mean, when you So when you look at uh, the free the the will that man has, it's always uh, the will that that man has is always towards sin and against God, uh, but it never is uh, towards God because obviously, as we established earlier, uh, that that man in his sin uh, cannot move towards God.
1: Right, exactly. If it doesn't say that man can't refuse, it says that he can't of his own free will, dead and trespasses and sins, do anything to choose the good. Um, it doesn't say, in fact, there's numerous examples where it says that people resisted the Spirit or refused the Spirit. You have um, Stephen's Sermon in Acts, and then you have the people resisting. The Holy Spirit tells them that they're resisting the Spirit just as their fathers before them did. Um, so you have examples in Scripture of people doing just what they say they man can't do but it does say you can do that now how does that all work together with everything we've you know said about the atonement and there being just single predestination god doesn't explain to us exactly how that all works he explains to us what we need to know for our salvation and doesn't often give us all the details that we would like to know
0: All right, uh, what, and this maybe is going back a little bit more towards irresistible grace, uh, but what's the difference between Lutheranism and Calvinism on the efficacy of the preached word?
1: Um, That's a good question. I I think, and you have to understand, too, there are, um, even as I I, I say a lot of these things, there are, even within Calvinism, as noted earlier, there's some various strands, and I know on the preached word there's some different, some differing views. So I'll I'll try to be more general as far as what probably more more popularly held and taught in Calvinistic circles. Um, my understanding, um, at least as I was a Calvinist, is that as the preached word goes out, the Spirit is only working in those who are elect, um, and, and them alone, so that the word only has any kind of effect on those who are elect, um, unless its goal, which also goes to double predestination, um, is to harden someone. In that case, perhaps the preaching of the word is the, the spirits working towards um, hardening someone. That would be more of a, even more of a hyper Calvinist position um, as far as as far as that goes. Whereas, as Lutherans, we teach that the Spirit always is going out with the Word, that you can't separate the Word from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always at work um, when the Word goes out, and that it can be, as we talked about, resisted, that it can be fought against, that people can harden their hearts to um, that Word and reject that Word. And when they're doing that, they're rejecting the Spirit, because the Spirit's always going out with the word you can't separate the two um that's one thing that i think lutheranism um differs vastly from almost every protestant um church out there is that we when we say that the word um the spirit and the word go together most tend to separate that and that's why we have so many different kinds of charismatic or as we would say enthusiast movements um in American evangelicalism, is because they separate spirit from the word.
0: You've uh, mentioned this several times. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna rephrase it in the positive, so we can end on this. Um, what what treasures do we have in Lutheran theology that you just don't have in Calvinist theology?
1: I, I think for me, and I, I emailed several of my um, Presbyterian friends this when I became a. When I well, when I finally realized I was a Lutheran and started telling people about it, was that you, Jesus truly is at the center of everything. So what do I have in Lutheranism that I, I didn't have? I feel like, honestly, for me, I have Jesus. And by that, I mean I have the full assurance of the forgiveness of my sins. I have life and salvation in Him. And I don't have to doubt that. My conscience can't condemn me or terrify me because I can look and say, Christ has promised to save me in my baptism. He has given me that word of promise. I hear the word of promise in the absolution. Your sins are forgiven you. I hear the word of promise at at the rail when I receive the Lord's Supper, the body and blood of Christ for you, for the forgiveness of your sins. So at the end of the day, what I have is I have the fullness of the gospel. Because now I feel like, as a Lutheran for the first time, I really get, what the gospel is and what that really means for me um, and how that affects everything I do. It's one thing to think you may or may not have that forgiveness and always be in this tension or doubt. It's another thing to know and hear week after week that Christ has died for you, He forgives you, and He has done everything for you and on your behalf for your salvation. And to know that that promise stands, and that I can cling to it no matter what.
0: We've been talking with Vicar Andrew Packer. He was a member of the Presbyterian Church of America and formerly attended Greensville Presbyterian Theological Seminary for two years before enrolling at Concordia Theological Seminary and is currently serving as the vicar at St. Paul Evangelical Lutheran Church in Lockport, Illinois. Vicar Packer, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Evan.
0: All right, what are the ways that you can send feedback to what you heard on today's show? Well, there's a few ways. You can give us a call, 1-800-385-SOLA, one 800 sola and leave us a voicemail message. Or you can send us an email, questions at tabletalkradio.org. That's questions at tabletalkradio.org. We do want to hear from you uh, from one of those ways. Or you can also post a comment uh, under this uh, page on the on our podcast page, there's a place for you to register for your name and place a comment as well. You've been listening to Table Talk Radio uh, uh, and Table Scraps, and uh, continue to listen to further podcasts when we bring to you comparisons of the Lutheran Church with other Christian denominations. Thanks for listening to this edition of Table Scraps. Talk to you next time.